0: everyone and happy new year. This is Jeannie. I use she, her pronouns and you're listening to sex talk happy hour. This is not our official January episode though. Keep your ears open at the end of the month. We have some really exciting guests coming instead. This mini is a call to action. You may or may not know this already, but we currently have a few weeks left in the public notice and comment period for a set of proposed changes to the federal Title IX laws. Now, that might have sounded like a lot of legal jargon, so I actually have a guest who's going to clear that up for you. More specifically, the proposed regulations address colleges and universities and their responsibilities in responding to allegations of gender-based violence on campus. We're hoping that you will listen and write and submit your own comment to the federal registry on these proposed debt regulations by the deadline. As with our regular episodes, this mini-episode comes with a self-care heads-up, particularly for those of you who have survived or experienced incidents of sexual violence as a college student. Please know that while this is a call to action, that we completely understand and support you if this episode is too much for you, and we encourage you to go and do something loving and warm for yourself. So, today I'm bringing in my brilliant colleague, Nastia, to discuss this topic and to talk specifically about what you can do, should you be interested. So, hi, Nastia. Hi, Jeannie. All right, so thank you so much for being here. Just really quick can you give our listeners a truncated timeline of events regarding Title IX at the federal level? What is it? All that stuff.
1: Absolutely. So, Title IX is a civil rights statute and there has been quite a bit of hubbub and kind of conversations about it since maybe about 2012, 2013, although it's always been part of the national dialogue, dialogue, excuse me, since 1972 at which point uh, it became a civil rights statute. It's actually a very short statute. It's just a couple sentences, in fact, that essentially prohibits sex discrimination in educational settings. So what Title IX guarantees is that you have the right to an education free from violence. It's really that simple, but since 1972, the Department of Education, Office of Civil Rights, has issued guidances, which are essentially clarifications about what this means in practice. So this includes the Department of Education saying, oh, we consider sex discrimination to include things like sexual assault or we consider sex discrimination to include pregnant and parenting students or discrimination against pregnant and parenting students rather and that equity in athletics and equity in science, technology, engineering and math fields is also kind of covered under Title IX. So although these conversations are pretty broad-reaching, the actual crux of the statute is very simple and guarantees you the right to an
0: education free from violence. Great. So can you walk us through kind of what's been happening with Title IX over the past like two-ish years? Mm
1: -hmm. Sure. So in 2011, the Obama administration issued what they called a Dear Colleague Letter, which was an informal guidance essentially outlining a lot more requirements than had been outlined before regarding the handling of sexual assault and sexual violence on college campuses. Now in the past, in 2001, the Bush administration had already issued a Dear Colleague Letter on this topic, and the Obama administration went even further in ensuring the rights of students and protecting students. They included due process provisions for both reporting and responding students. And uh, to clarify, when I mean that, I'm talking about a kind of what we would colloquially sometimes refer to as survivors and perpetrators. In Title IX, we tend to say reporting students for survivors and responding students for perpetrators because the alleged conduct or incident is still under investigation. In 2014, they then issued another document that even further kind of answered some questions and gave universities and colleges guidance about what their responsibilities are. I do want to kind of call into this space the fact that the first thing that the Trump administration did under Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos regarding Title IX was rescind a 2015 letter that outlined the fact that sex discrimination does in fact include discrimination based on gender identity. So this was a guidance that protected specifically transgender and gender non-conforming youth and students. That was rescinded first. which was very disappointing to a lot of folks in the LGBTQ spaces and communities. Mm. I do also want to point out that although we're going to primarily be talking about colleges and universities because that is kind of where a lot of the regulations focused, Title IX absolutely does impact K-12 as well. There has not been as much discussion, unfortunately, about what that should look like in middle and high schools, although it's critical, in our opinion, that these conversations start earlier because we know that sex discrimination and sexual violence is happening at the K-12 level. So. What happened in September of 2017 was that the Trump administration decided to rescind both the 2011 Obama administration letter and the 2014 letter, and of course the 2015 one on transgender and gender non-conforming youth already having been rescinded. So what this meant in practice was that universities who had been asked to step up a little bit higher and had raised expectations for their response to sexual violence on campuses, kind of were in this in-between period where a very brief interim guidance had been issued, but were essentially waiting for more directions from the Department of Education as to what the expectations were for their response to sexual violence on campus. In November of 2018, the draft kind of regulations were issued and they are now in this period of public comment.
0: Great. Thank you so much for that timeline um, and for filling us in on that. So <clears throat> in terms of the notice and comment period. What is that? How is this different from what the Obama administration had issued before in terms of the Dear Colleague letters and guidances? How are those two things different? So not every
1: law goes through Congress. More regulations than um, I personally was aware of went through what they call an informal rulemaking process and there are different types of rules and regulations that can be passed through this informal rulemaking process that essentially bypasses Congress that is done by the kind of expert department under which that type of regulation or rule would lie. So The Title IX regulations that have just been proposed a couple months ago, uh, November of 2018, have been going through a more formal rulemaking process or a lengthier rulemaking process than the previous guidance that had been issued regarding sexual assault and sex discrimination and harassment in educational settings. So what that means is that they're going to be harder to rescind. The two Obama guidances that I had mentioned that were rescinded by this current administration had not gone through all the steps of an informal rulemaking process that these proposed regulations are going through. So what that means is that whereas it was pretty simple for a new administration with a kind of a different politic and different set of priorities to rescind the guidances that had been put in place in the past, these current regulations are going to be much harder to undo by a future administration who might have
0: a different set of priorities. Gotcha. So it kind of feels like a difference between, like, a formal versus informal setting almost.
1: Yeah, and I will underline that this is still considered an informal rule, right, because it's not going through Congress, but it doesn't change the fact that universities, colleges, schools will be held to the new standard in the proposed regulations.
0: Gotcha. Thank you for that clarification. Mm -hmm. So, what are the biggest changes in the proposed regulations that you saw that you are feeling maybe the most concerned about, or, the, or maybe just the biggest changes that are that are there?
1: Mm-hmm. I want to start by kind of zooming out a little bit. I do want to note kind of the symbolic import of these regulations, as well as kind of the nitty gritty that I can get into a little bit too. The general kind of gist of what some of these proposed regulations are doing are symbolizing to students that student survivors or reporting students are prone to lying about sex discrimination in particular more so than other types of discrimination, more so than other types of violence or assault. So we know that that is not true. We know that uh, false reports of sexual violence are at the same percentage level, if not lower than other types of violence. Our concern with these regulations is that they provide a lot of protections for schools. So what they're essentially doing is jeopardizing the safety of all students on campus, regardless of whether you have experienced sex discrimination and violence or not. Not prioritizing
0: kind of the legal and financial safety of the schools. Gotcha. So, could you give us maybe some of highlight some of the pieces that make you feel that way, or or that is signaling that to students on campuses?
1: Absolutely. Uh, so, one of the most significant changes is that the department has proposed a different and kind of newer definition of sexual harassment. This definition of sexual harassment is a lot narrower than those that have been used in the past, and is also a lot narrower than definitions of harassment that are used in other civil rights. Laws around other types of discrimination against protected classes. So I'm thinking about race, I'm thinking about disability, national origin. So what this is going to do is create kind of this two-tiered system, if not more, uh, because in fact the definition of harassment is kind of threefold in these regulations. That is another concern: the fact that they're very confusing and they do, in some places, conflict with other federal, state, and city laws. So this is going to make it hard for schools to parse out where they're. To be following which standards, which definitions, and that in turn is going to make it increasingly difficult for students to have a clear roadmap to follow in terms of their reporting options, which is one of the reasons that students may choose not to report sexual assault already.
0: I really appreciate you highlighting that too because I want to point out that Title IX is a federal law and there are states and cities that have their own laws with specific regard to gender based violence on campuses and K 12. So thank you for clarifying mm-hmm. that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, So kind of about this harassment, to turn it back to kind of how I see this as uh, prioritizing the schools over the students. What the department has said is that if this narrow definition of sexual harassment is not reached, then the school cannot pursue uh, an investigation under Title IX. So the definition that they've used is so severe and pervasive, and objectively offensive, that it has effectively denied access to education. So what this means is that if something has happened perhaps only once, it might not be clarified as pervasive, and if it was not considered subjectively severe enough, or if the student in, in question is still able to attend classes, then the school will essentially have to ignore their report of sexual harassment. This is really concerning, particularly when we go back to the very crux of Title Nine, which is keeping students in school and ensuring that they have access to their educational rights, essentially. It should not be about whether or not schools have to go through a lengthy and potentially time-consuming process because it is their responsibility to ensure that students are able to access their education.
0: Gotcha. Thank you so much for providing that information. Is there anything else that you would like for our listeners to just kind of keep their ear to the ground about?
1: Absolutely, and I know that a lot of folks are probably listening from New York City or New York State, uh, given that that is where uh, the New York City Alliance Against Sexual Assault is based. (laughs) but uh, one of the things that we are also concerned about, which again points to the department prioritizing kind of schools being let off the hook over students' safety and well-being, is that they have narrowed the geographic scope of institutional responsibility. And what I mean by that is that if incident of violence and incident of assault or harassment happens beyond the educational program or quote unquote off campus, which could literally mean across the street <laughs> from a university dorm or a classroom building, then the department has now said that the institution does not have to act and in fact cannot act. So what we're talking about is not just the investigation of a report, but we're also talking about safety measures, supportive measures, counseling, an extension on a school paper, kind of all of these provisions that have been put in place in the past to ensure that students are able to continue their schooling if harassment or violence does occur. A lot of that is being undermined now, particularly in cities such as New York. We know that a lot of students are commuting to school. We know that a lot of students live off campus. In fact, there are some colleges and universities wherein the dorm buildings that are affiliated with the school, so if you live kind of in a residential space at the school, might be owned by an independent kind of company and not owned by the school, that would no longer count. So if you were assaulted in what you consider to be your dorm, but then you find out when you go to report that it is in fact owned independently by somebody else and not by the school, what happened to you in that dormitory, you might not be eligible for any type of support, safety measures, or response avenue with the school.
0: Right. So I would imagine that that also applies to like house parties off campus in any Anyone who doesn't live in school housing, okay. Absolutely. So that's that scope is pretty alarming.
1: It's also very concerning about what this means for online sexual harassment. We're not entirely sure what that would even look like. Would it be different if somebody received a threatening text while they were literally in a school building and looked at it then? What if they looked at their phone five minutes later? We don't know what any of this will look like. Right, anymore. and how do you
0: even go about investigating something like that? Exactly. Right, okay. Anything else that you would want to highlight or feel that the listeners should should be aware of?
1: Yeah, I think one thing that has been really picked up by the press and is particularly of concern to advocates and to kind of activists as well, is an unprecedented mandate for live hearings. I want to first very quickly address kind of why schools are even handling this in the first place because I know that there are a lot of folks who kind of are reading about this or talking about this and are recognizing that a lot of the cases that we're talking about are really significant incidents of violence that maybe like a, a first got responses, well, this should be handled by the police, this is a crime, absolutely that is the case. Title IX has never been a process that is instituted instead of reporting to the criminal legal system. It has been an additional parallel process that provides options for people that the criminal legal system might not be able to. So real quick, that includes a speedier response because schools can, can kind of provide some safety measures immediately. They could move somebody from a class immediately or move a housing do a housing transfer immediately, whereas a criminal legal process can take years.
0: Right. And in my experience as someone who works really closely with campuses, I definitely have seen students going to Title IX more for the accommodations and less for the full on investigation. Like I, I know a lot of students, for example, like you said, are commuter students students in New York City and they uh, want to have public safety meet them after their 9 p.m. class to walk them to the train mm-hmm. because their their ex-partner or whoever knows that they go to school there. Absolutely. So it, it is interesting and, and, and important to highlight that Title IX is a civil rights law and not a criminal law.
1: Exactly, exactly. So even if the conduct that we're talking about is something that would be considered illegal and a crime and could be prosecuted through the criminal legal system, That process can be very daunting for a lot of people. It can also be considered inaccessible to a lot of communities, particularly communities of color, folks with mental health concerns. Undocumented folks. LGBTQ communities. A lot of people who might not perceive themselves to have access to to reporting to the police or uh, talking to a prosecutor, and our students might still feel able to report to Title IX, and in doing so, kind of be able to continue their access to education and maintain that civil right. Gotcha, so how does the live hearing concern kind of play into that? So what we're seeing is kind of a hearkening towards the criminal legal system without any of the protections of the criminal legal system. Title IX should not become, be becoming kind of more court-like. So the live hearing means that somebody would have to be exposed to the adversarial nature of a hearing, of being cross-examined, without the same protections, without the same experts at their side as they would have in a criminal court. They would not have the same time to prepare. They would not have the same kind of prosecutorial support. In fact, they would will be permitted an advisor of choice. This could be a parent, this could be a fellow student, this could be a professor, not somebody who is equipped to prepare somebody to be uh, cross-examined live. Additionally, this advisor of choice is the one who will be doing the cross-examination if these proposed regulations go into effect as they stand now. What this means is that a reporting student or a survivor will have to be subjected to live cross-examination by their accused's advisor of choice. So let me go back to the fact that this could be a parent or a professor or a sympathetic friend or a lawyer who is well trained in tearing apart statements. It really makes me shudder at the image of a student without any prep being essentially put on a witness stand to be interrogated live by an angry parent who believes that their child has been wrongfully accused or by a hired gun lawyer who is absolutely equipped with ripping apart survivors and doesn't have any of the usual protections of a courtroom to say, objection! that was an entirely inappropriate question. None of that will be present in the new proposed kind of Title IX mandated live hearing. And I will note real quick as well, two things. Firstly, if you do not agree to submit to this cross-examination, your statement will be considered inadmissible in the finding of responsibility.
0: So... Just to Mm -hmm. ask, clarify that point a little further, if if I were a student who had experienced some form of sexual violence and I did not want to go through cross-examination because the advisor of choice is a parent or a really good friend or, or whatever, anything that I write or do or say or provide as evidence wouldn't be taken into consideration?
1: Yes which essentially means that the school will not be able to continue without the reporting individual, whereas in the past, a school has been able to ascertain that, oh, multiple people have reported this one person. It is now our responsibility as an institution that holds uh, accountability for our students and for the safety of our school community to move forward with an investigation using perhaps written statements or something like that. So what has been used in the past, just to give folks a little bit of a comparison point, is an investigator model. We consider that best practice. An independent investigator would talk to anybody who had anything to share about the incident, the reporting student, the responding student, any witnesses, kind of anything to get clarification about exactly what happened. This would then be compiled into a report both the reporting and the responding student would get a copy and would be able to essentially sign off that yes, this accurately represents the information that I shared with you. And then this report would then go to a hearing panel and the hearing panel would make decisions based on the report. If the reporting or the responding student wanted to make a victim impact statement or respondent impact statement, they were able to do so, but they were never put in the same room together. There are some provisions in these new regulations about the reporting and responding students not having to be in the same room together, but they still mandate the cross-examination to be live and they even use the words adversarial nature in their regulations. And I will note that the live hearing is also a mandate for K-12. So imagine a 15-year-old student having to go through this type of an essentially court process without the support and protections of kind of the increased team that is
0: around you for a minor. And meanwhile, not being able to get the accommodations that they might actually need without having to go through that. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. Now you had mentioned you had wanted to make, highlight two things. So what was the second thing? K through twelve. Ah, gotcha. So you already did it. <laughs> Way ahead of me. <laughs> wow. Okay. So these regulations, listeners, as you can tell, are things that we are are quite concerned about. There's also a ton more information. I mean, we're definitely only scratching the surface of the iceberg. And I will say that we at the Alliance and Nastia individually <laughs> has a lot of resources around what this is like. So this is where you come in, right? So what do our listeners need to know about how to write and submit a comment. Mm-hmm. And what, it, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to submit a comment? Why would someone go and take the time to write a comment and mm-hmm. submit it? All that stuff.
1: So the very purpose of the 60-day period is for the Department of Education to solicit feedback from the public. So this includes individuals, this also includes experts, this includes people who would be affected by these regulations. So they want to hear from students, from colleges and universities, uh, they want to hear from advocates, they want to hear from parents, concerned individuals, and they're essentially hoping to use that feedback to then kind of Finalize and draft up and make potentially amendments to these regulations. So we're really encouraging folks to submit comments. There are a lot of concerns. As Jeannie said, we've only scratched the surface and there are maybe about 12 things that are particularly of concern to all students and to particularly student survivors as well. So definitely reach out if you would like any more information. But in terms of writing a comment specifically, this is essentially your opportunity to participate in the democratic process. Because these regulations are not going to go through Congress, there will not be the same hearings, At some other laws and that some other bills are afforded, this is a really critical time for different perspectives and for the public in particular to have input and to hopefully influence the department's decisions about what the final draft of these regulations will look like.
0: So, hypothetically, if the vast majority of the comments that are submitted point towards these are the, the five things that we as a public, generally speaking, do not agree with, hypothetically, the regulations would change to reflect that.
1: They are meant to. So the stakeholders that this administration's Department of Education prioritized meeting with prior to releasing the proposed regulations are concerning. They were primarily groups of accused students, parents of accused students. However, they only met with one group of survivors once. Uh, So we're really hoping to kind of flood that perspective into their inboxes and into their letterboxes uh, through this notice and comment period, given that it was
0: significantly ignored in the original drafting. Gotcha. Well, I definitely think <laughs> that, that folks need to, to still submit the comments for sure. So what? how would someone go about doing mm-hmm. that?
1: The way that they uh, are submitted is through the federal registry, but Know Your Nine and, and Rape on Campus, who are two groups of student survivor activists that I would encourage folks to check out, have created a super handy, super accessible tool, wherein you can essentially submit your comments through an organizational website, and they will go directly to the Federal Register. So you don't have to kind of click through all those websites and try and navigate your way through that. So we at the Alliance are really encouraging folks to submit comments, and we have embedded this comment tool on our website. I believe it will be in the episode uh,
0: description. Yes. Yes.
1: Uh, So we would love for folks to check that out. There is a little bit of information about what submitting a comment could look like. The tool itself also has a template that you can use, um, but I do want to provide a little bit of information about kind of what the comment should look like. Yes, please. So it is going to be important for each comment to be, quote-unquote, individual or unique and specific. Any comments that are considered too similar can be counted as one. So 10,000 people could submit a comment saying that they believe that cross-examination is traumatizing, that there are not enough protections to ensure due process for both the reporting and responding student, and that this is inappropriate for developmentally young adults. These 10,000 comments could be counted as one if everybody said that. Even if everybody said that in very different ways, somebody wrote a poem about it, somebody wrote an essay about it. If there are not any unique justifications for the concerns, such as a study a study cited or a particular experience or a past case, then they will be able
0: to essentially amalgamate these comments into one so I have a question about that because I can definitely see folks feeling pretty discouraged by that fact. And so what would you say is the argument to writing and submitting a comment anyway?
1: I would say pick the specific concerns with these regulations that you care most about. There are absolutely legal firms and there are lawyers and, you know, national organizations that are writing like 45-page comments that detail a lot of different concerns. That doesn't have to be you. You can think about the religious exemption, for example, which is of particular concern to LGBTQ communities, wherein there will now be no mandated transparency from institutions of education, whether or not they consider themselves exempt from any Title IX standards uh, because of their religious affiliation. So essentially, students could be discriminated against based on their reproductive health care choices or their uh, gender identity or sexual orientation, and uh, the school will be allowed to do that by the Department of Education. So if that is something that seems of particular concern to you, write about that. Write about that because you went to a school that was religiously affiliated or that was faith-based and you had a wonderful time and you would not take back that education and that you know that, quick Google search, X percent of students do go to faith-based schools, there's your study, there's your unique justification, and that concerns you because that's a significant percentage of the population. It could be as simple as that. We are also able to offer a lot of resources. There is a mini data guide that, again, and Rape on Campus and Know Your Nine have put together that just has a couple pages of
0: statistics that you could toss in there just to ensure that your comment is unique. Gotcha. Um, Is there anything else that our listeners need to know about writing and submitting a comment? And mm-hmm.
1: I think the deadline is important.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Uh, So the deadline is January 28th of 2019. At that point, the notice and comment period will be closed. Get your voice heard by January 28th. If you'd like to submit a written comment or if you'd like to host a public notice and comment writing party, uh, there's also information that we can provide about that. I would advise written comments to be submitted by maybe January 20th, January 21st, as they do have to be received by... the
0: 28th. And you're talking about handwritten comments that would be mailed in? Yes, yes. Anything else about the the public nature of a notice and comment period that any listener that wants to submit a comment should know about?
1: So the mechanism for transparency does indicate that the comments will have to be made publicly available. Uh, So that means that they will become part of public record if everything kind of goes by the, uh, the, the process as it has been created. So that means that your comment should be able to be viewed at some point once it is kind of processed and uh, catalogued online. Uh, So what that means is that if you are a survivor and you choose to disclose, that's something that you should just be aware of. It doesn't mean that you should not disclose. It doesn't mean that this will go any further. We're just advising caution to uh, folks about disclosing any kind of experiences of violence if that is not something you have done publicly before. And that also is important to bear in mind if you're talking about Uh, somebody else's case, please do ask permission before offering any identifying information, um, unless of course it is a case that is already part of public record, in which case uh, the names might be anonymized anyway.
0: Gotcha. Thank you so much. All right, listeners, first of all, thank you, Nastia, for being here, for spending your morning with me, and for sharing this information. I know it's not easy information. I also know that you've been sharing this information in about 15 million spaces since <laughs> this whole process started. So thank you. Thank you so much. Of um course. Listeners, if what you heard today was compelling and spurs you to action, we've actually included the link to submit your online comment in the episode description, so make sure you check it out there. You can also access it through our website, svfreenyc.org. Furthermore, Nastia, because they're wonderful, (laughs) has graciously offered to send any additional materials and information to anyone who wants to learn more. So maybe you're not entirely convinced or you just want more information and you're a reader and you have a long commute and you have travels (laughs) coming up that you want to do some reading on on Um, Nastia has offered to provide any additional information that you are interested in seeing so you can find their email address also in this episode description so thanks again tune in a few weeks from now for our regularly scheduled episode of sex talk happy hour it's going to be a really good one and in the meantime thank you for those of you who have already written and submitted a comment and thank you in advance for those of you who are planning to do so ciao